Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to This Day in History class, where we dust off a little piece of history every day. The day was May 6th, 1884. Katie Sanduina was born Catherine Brumbach in Vienna, Austria, to Philippe and Johanna Brumbach. Katie would go on to become a popular strong woman who wowed her audiences with feats like lifting horses. Katie was born into a circus family. Her mom and dad were circus performers, standing at about six feet tall and six foot six, respectively. When Katie was two years old, she was already holding handstands. So she began gymnastics training early on as a child. By the time she was a teenager, Katie had already grown to six feet tall and 187 pounds, or about 183 centimeters and 85 kilograms. Because she was growing to be beautiful and strong, she became an important part of the family show as they toured throughout Europe. In her early acts, Katie's father would offer 100 gold marks to anyone who could beat her at wrestling. Nobody ever managed to beat her. But she did meet the love of her life through this stunt. When she was 16, a 19-year-old acrobat named Max Heyman took on the challenge of wrestling Katie in the hopes that he would get some publicity and cash. She defeated him, but they soon fell in love with each other. She even began including him in her act, lifting him over her head with one arm and using him as a rifle in a skit where she pretended to be a soldier. A couple of years after they met, Katie and Max were married. Max and Katie, also known as the Lady Hercules, split from the family circus and left Europe for the United States in the early 1900s. Part of Katie's act was to challenge people to beat her at lifting progressively heavier weights. One formidable challenger was Eugene Sandow, a famous bodybuilder. They made it up to 300-pound weights. Katie lifted the load over her head, but Sandow could only lift it to his chest. Katie had beaten a leading strongman, and because she had, perhaps out of jest or tribute, Katie changed her last name to Sandwina, a female derivative of Sandow. She added the great Sandwina to her list of monikers. As Katie beefed up her strongwoman act, she began amazing her crowds by breaking iron chains, bending iron bars, juggling 30-pound cannonballs, balancing a revolving merry-go-round with several adults on it on her chest, acting as the foundation of a bridge over which several people and a horse would pass, and lifting a half-ton cannon on her back or chest. But for the press, just as impressive as her feats was her beauty. One 1911 article by Kate Carew in the San Francisco Examiner said the following of Katie. She is as majestic as the Sphinx, as pretty as a Valentine, as sentimental as a German schoolgirl, and as wholesome as a great big slice of bread and butter. She has the strength of 10 ordinary men united with the milky, satin femininity of 100 ordinary women. And she has stepped down from the dwelling place of the gods to do strong woman stunts in the circus. 
Katie toured the U.S. on the Orpheum vaudeville circuit. While she was on tour, she had a son with Max named Theodore. She performed two acts the night before Theodore was born. In 1911, John Ringling signed Katie and Max to the Barnum and Bailey Circus. At first, she was part of an act called the Sanduinas, which included other strength-related performances. But once it was clear she was the star of the show, Katie became the featured performer. At press conferences, physicians would take note of Katie's measurements, and reporters would dote over her perfection and Venus-like beauty. Outside of her circus work, she was also a suffragette. In 1912, she became the vice president of the Suffragette Ladies of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. In 1918, Katie and Max had another son named Alfred. They stayed with Barnum and Bailey for a while, but after the circus fell on hard times during the Great Depression, the duo joined the state-run Works Progress Administration Circus. Katie gave her last performance in the late 1940s, and she retired when she was 64 years old. At that point, she and Max opened a restaurant in New York where they would sometimes honor customers' requests to perform strength feats. In January of 1952, Katie died of cancer. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about Katie Sandwina, listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called The Glamorous Strong Woman. If you have any burning questions or comments, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks for joining me on this trip through history. See you here, same place, tomorrow. Hello, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast where the past becomes the present. The day was May 6th, 1882. U.S. President Chester A. Arthur signed the Chinese Exclusion Act. The act banned the immigration of Chinese laborers for 10 years, though Congress later extended it. On paper, the act still allowed Chinese merchants, students, teachers, and diplomats to enter the U.S., but it prevented thousands of people from immigrating into the country, and it established a precedent for discriminatory race and class-based immigration laws. In the 1850s, Thousands of Chinese people began moving to the United States in search of work. Many of them moved to California to join the gold rush, though others sought work in factories, mines, agriculture, domestic jobs, and the garment industry. Many of these Chinese laborers were escaping poverty and social unrest in China, and they often worked for lower wages than non-Chinese laborers did. As more Chinese immigrants began taking low-wage jobs in the U.S., non-Chinese laborers began to resent the competition they created in job markets. Anti-Chinese sentiment grew. Despite the fact that Chinese immigrants made up a lot of the labor in mines, the first transcontinental railroad, and other industries, they faced poor conditions and discrimination at work and at home. California and other states began passing anti-Chinese laws. For instance, in 1850, the California state legislature passed the Foreign Miners Tax Law, placing a monthly $20 tax on miners who were not U.S. citizens. 
The act was repealed the next year but soon reenacted, and it led many Chinese miners to quit their job and move to cities under impoverished conditions. The 1868 Burlingame Seward Treaty allowed for Chinese immigration to the U.S. with few regulations. It annulled many state laws that restricted Chinese immigration. That said, laws restricting Chinese immigration were still passed. The U.S.'s Page Act of 1875 prohibited the immigration of East Asian forced laborers and people entering for, quote, immoral purposes. This act was a thinly veiled effort to restrict Asian immigration without doing so on the basis of race, and it effectively ended the immigration of Chinese women. While some advocated anti-Chinese legislation by saying that Chinese immigrants would lower American moral standards, others were explicit that their concerns were based on race. A few years after the Page Act was passed, Congress passed legislation to restrict immigration from China. In March of 1879, U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes vetoed the bill for violating the Burlingame Treaty. But he still opposed the so-called Chinese invasion, and many politicians supported the complete exclusion of Chinese immigrants. In 1880, the Hayes administration appointed U.S. diplomat James Angel to negotiate a new treaty with China. The U.S. ratified the Angel Treaty in 1881, which permitted a suspension on the immigration of Chinese laborers, but allowed the entry and exit of those who were already in the U.S. In 1882, President Chester Arthur vetoed a bill that banned the immigration of Chinese laborers for 20 years. But on May 6th of that year, he signed the Chinese Exclusion Act into law. The act suspended the immigration of Chinese laborers for 10 years. It also required Chinese laborers already in the U.S. who left the country to get certificates of return in order to re-enter the country. On top of this, the act prohibited courts from naturalizing Chinese people. After the act went into effect, some people took violent actions to get Chinese people out of their communities. In the Rock Springs Massacre of 1885, which I covered in a previous episode, white miners started a riot in Wyoming Territory that caused the death of at least 28 Chinese miners and drove many others out of town. The Scott Act of 1888 banned the re-entry of around 20,000 Chinese people who had left the U.S. temporarily. The Geary Act of 1892 renewed Chinese exclusion for 10 years, and in 1902, it was extended indefinitely. The acts placed heavy restrictions on the immigration of Chinese people, encouraged the abuse of Chinese workers, and incited increased violence, racism, and xenophobia. But many Chinese people managed to circumvent the laws, and some Chinese merchants organized an anti-American boycott and many Chinese people protested and fought for their rights in court. Still, U.S. immigration exclusion escalated, and the Immigration Act of 1924 banned all immigration from Asia. As immigration increased after World War II, Congress established quotas to regulate immigration. The Chinese Exclusion Acts were repealed in 1943, after the U.S. and China became allies in the war and the Magnuson Act was passed. It set the annual quota for Chinese immigrants extremely low, at 105 people. It wasn't until the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 that the National Origins Quota System was abolished, 
and the number of Asian people immigrating to the U.S. increased dramatically. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you have any comments or suggestions or questions, you can hit us up on social media. We're at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can also send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.